0: Kia ora, ko an O'Brien toku a e or waituhi or tamaki, no mai, haerumai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi or tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2021 event. A Lyrical Love Letter to the Land is how reviewer Linda Burgess describes Manawatu farmer, poet, and performer Tim Saunders' debut memoir, This Farming Life. Further south in central Otago, novelist, memoirist, poet and essayist Gillian Sullivan walks the hills and mountains of the Ida Valley that surround her home, conjuring her perceptive essay collection, Map for the Heart. Both books provide beautifully rendered portraits of lives lived close to the land and exposed to the seasons, and shine a light on the ways in which geography shapes connection. Saunders and Sullivan share stories in conversation with Mary De Reuter. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Ina e mana, Inga e e iwi. Tena koutou kato. Ko Mary Doroita toku ingoa. Tena koutou kato. No mai haere mai and welcome to this Auckland Writers Festival session, "Love Letters to the Land." My name is Mary Doroita, and I'll be guiding this discussion between our two writers over the next hour. First, the requisite housekeeping. The screen has already told you, but I'll remind you again. Please double check that your phones are silenced or off. Please scan or manually sign in if you haven't already. Wear a face mask if you want to, and feel free to leave during the session if you begin to feel unwell. We encourage you to post about Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tāmaki, on social media during the session, but please do so with consideration for your fellow audience members. Gillian and Tim's most recent books have both been described as love letters to the land. They take us across pastures and up mountains, past rivers and burns, through mud, grass and tussock, a lot of mud in Tim's case. As they recount their experiences and explorations, Tim and Gillian remind us that the land links us with past and future generations. Indeed, the land built for eternity is a constant that must be protected. At this point, in a session that's particularly about the land, I'd like to acknowledge Māori as the tangata whenua of New Zealand. Their connection with the whenua is also deep and goes back centuries. And one thing we all have in common is the desire to safeguard the land and help it thrive. In this session, Tim and Gillian will talk about their lives lived close to the land and exposed to the seasons. We'll have a mix of conversations and readings, and there will be time at the end for audience questions. Emphasis on the word questions. Tim Saunders farms sheep, beef, and crops in fielding with his family, and performs poetry in woolsheds around the Manawatū. His first full-length book, This Farming Life, is the story of life through the seasons on a fifth-generation family farm. One reviewer called it, a man-on-the-land story unlike anything you will have read. This year he was the only New Zealand finalist in the Commonwealth Writers' Prize, one of 25 finalists from more than 6,400 entries. His short stories and poems have been published in Landfall, New Zealand Listener, Turbine Kapohau, Takahe and other outlets. After winning the 2018 Mind Food Magazine Short Story Competition, he also he placed third in the 2019 and 20 New Zealand National Flash Fiction Day Awards. There's a photo of Tim often used for publicity, which shows him sitting... On uh, sitting on the ground in the farmyard, scribbling away in a notebook, and there's a couple of sheep quite close by, and one of them has its little hooves up on his <laughs> arm, and it's looking very intently at uh, what he's writing. And at some stage, I hope we'll have time to canvas what kind of feedback the lamb actually gives yeah. you. <laughs> Too much about the sunset, not enough about the sheep. <clears throat> Gillian Sullivan lives and writes in a small village on an alpine plateau in central Otago. In Map for the Heart, a collection of essays set in the Ida Valley, she says, Who would choose to live in the coldest valley in the country, where there are limited jobs and you take turns cleaning the public toilet? Yeah. <laughs> the answer is, of course, the mountains and the land. Gillian's many published book, t- books, 12, uh, 13. 13 now, Uh, For adults and young folk, include creative non-fiction, novels, memoirs, short stories and poetry. She has a Master of Creative Writing with Distinction from Massey University and has won numerous competitions and awards here and overseas. The Takahe Poetry Prize in 2016 and the New Zealand Society of Authors Beats and Fellowship in 2017 are just two of them. She teaches writing workshops here and in the United States and has done many other jobs too. But her passion for natural building has been a constant, whether building her own straw bale house or doing voluntary restoration work on mud brick buildings. A review of Map for the Heart says she writes thoughtfully and quietly, grounded in a landscape and community with which she actively engages. Please join me in welcoming Gillian and Tim. On the first page of the first essay in Gillian's book, there's a quote that seems central to the session's proposition. To live here is to come to terms with the dominance of nature. How do you both come to terms with your lives being shaped and influenced by the natural world, which is so often unpredictable?
2: Farmer?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm a fifth-generation farmer on my piece of land. And uh, so... Generation after generation, my father was there, his father was there, his father was there. We got, um, basically, the land is always part of what we do. It has to be there, we have to be there. We depend on the land, the land doesn't depend on us, um, which is something I think that you write a lot about in your book, Mm -hmm. because I I reviewed Gillian's book for landfall, and you talk about the the river existing for itself
2: yeah yeah Yeah. so um, so I don't depend on my land for an income I mean the farmers around I've got rescue cows and sheep which I've pledged not to ever eat or breed um, and the farmers around say but what sort of return do you get from them Yeah. I said well I really love the cow shit, um, because for earth plastering, of course, I mean, that's a really integral part. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but when you live in the, well, it's the coldest and the hottest place in New Zealand, and you're so aware of nature, um, because when it floods, it, it floods three quarters of my land is underwater. Um, remember looking out and seeing my armchair that I'd put by the pond floating across the fence. Mm. <laughs> um, when it snows, um, well, as a, um, a, you know, a recent person, I'd never struck really big snowfalls. And when the, all the locals said, there's a big snowstorm coming, are you ready? I'm like, whatever. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and um, so I didn't get in food, didn't cover my firewood and, um, and I was flying to America the next day to teach and so I walked out of the house with these little black boots on into a, a metre of snow <laughs> and, um, and it, my car had been buried by the snow plough. Like, you know, you really come face to face with what nature can do to you.
3: Yeah, and I think um, <clears throat> that's the difference mm-hmm. when, you've, when I've grown up on a place which has been, we see weather all the time. It's, it rules our lives, um, whether it's too hot, whether it's too cold, whether it's too dry, too wet, um, and you just learn to, um, to live with it and you have to live with what you're given. Mm. Mm.
1: Frustrating? Scary?
3: It can be scary. I've, I've got the Aurora River runs as a boundary um, to my farm. And the Aru River is very well known for flooding. Uh, We get, well, I've seen about three or four 50-year floods, I think. Not quite 50. (laughs) A couple of 100-year floods. Um, And it's it's a very unpredictable river. Uh, My father says it's a bastard of a river. Um, But we we bought the farm in 1906 uh, the little area that we're in is called Glenarua uh, in the Manawatu, and um, it was originally bought by a land baron called Isaac Greenaway and he owned all of the land and he wanted to make a little settlement there well quite a big settlement a city and he couldn't get planning permission for it so he gave up um, he couldn't get the planning pers- uh, permission because it flooded all the time. The river just flooded constantly. Everything went underwater. And uh, so he sold the land and it was my great-great-grandfather when he bought it, he put the stock banks up. He built stock banks and he stopped that flooding. And because of that, the local government at the time said, well, that's a good idea. Why didn't we think of that? Um, which they, they still do. Um, <laughs> that was our idea. Um, and uh, he... So they... Continued all those stock banks, and that's why all that land can now be farmed, um, because of that. So you, you learn, basically, that the land is, or the rivers, and everything's connected there. So you've just got to work with what you've got, and yeah. and yeah.
1: Could you tell us, Gillian, how you came to end up in central Otago, and both of you, how you came to the philosophy of living close to the land, but not dominating it? Okay, um, I, I really believe in the
2: power of writing something down, and sometimes I think you write things down, um, your dreams, and you don't realise that it's there ticking away in your life and will come true. So, when I was 17 at high school, I wrote, when I grow up, I want to live somewhere wild. Um, And my second husband had 100 acres uh, above the snow line, 1,000 metres high in the northwest ranges. And we built a a little hut hut up there with no power. And we really did live somewhere wild, but I'd already written that. And then um, when it came time to um, move, when my marriage ended, um, and I'd bought um, a little piece of land in Otorihuahua, because as a writer, it was affordable because it's the coldest and hottest place in the country. <laughs> it's a good place to go as a writer because you, you can live. You, know, you can get by on bits and pieces of work. And, um, but I, when I was packing, I found a letter I'd written to myself in 1998, um, and it was sealed. And I thought, I wonder what I wrote. And so I opened it up. I had no idea, and I opened it up, and it said... Um, I live in a straw bale house looking out to the mountains. Oh, and man. so there I was with this piece of land that looked straight at the Hawkland Mountains. And finally, at 55, I'd could i I'd gone there to build my dream of a straw bale house. But I'd, I'd written it, yeah, in 1998. I don't even know why, because it seemed like a dream that had long gone, but it was ticking away like a bomb. you know, <laughs> A
1: benevolent <clears> throat> throat> <laughs>
2: Yeah, but it's hopeful too that you can believe something and write it down and Mm. then forget about it but it it still works in your life
3: Mm. 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 In terms of of where I am I I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a farmer um, at all Now, um, of course, being the fifth generation my my brothers there uh, didn't really appeal to me to begin with so I went away and did other things I went uh, first. I went to film and television school because I liked TV. I thought that's a good job. Um, and all I started doing there was filming the horse races and things like that, and it wasn't very exciting. Um, so I went tour guiding, and I went down to Tianao and I went cave guiding. Uh, despite never been in a cave before and only having a vague idea where Tianao was, I thought it can't be that hard. Um, mm. So I went and did that and that was quite an a interesting job but all the time I was doing that there was this calling from the land calling me just thinking you know there's, there's something there there's something within me that's, that's based on the farm and of course from uh, that tour guiding job I went and did a lot of other tour guiding right around the country and I met a young German girl and ended up living in Germany for two years. Now that was really eye-opening, and that gave me a good idea of what I was missing back here, because there's a lot of people, and um, a lot of uh, not really clean air, and um, so I, when my visas ran out, I couldn't get any more visas, Catherine and I decided to come back here, and we decided because that calling was on the farm, I said, give it a go, and... Here we are, it's, I think it's 13, 14 years now we've been back, and, uh, and, and she loves it. She's, she never had a farming background, so she's really taken to it um, incredibly.
1: Walking seems to be a way that you've both become close to the land. You were walking the here, <coughs> Gillian, and you, and you must know every inch of that farm, like the back of your hand. Can you tell us a little about the walking and how that brings you closer.
2: Okay, so for many years um, I was busy building the house, <clears throat> but I, everywhere I went with Brian, Brian Turner, he would, he would name you know the mountain ranges and walked there and walked there, and, and I realised I didn't know much about where I lived, and so I decided that I would walk every hill and mountain where I lived and follow the river from the mountains to the confluence in, uh, with the Klutha um, and It's an amazing thing now when I drive up the valley to see, to know what it's like to be on those hills and and also when you're there, um, I think when we're on the ground and we look up, we think it's like a horizon and you think if you're on on it, you're, I don't know, somehow bigger or something, but you realise when you're up there how small you are and how amazing every rock and lichen is on the, on the tops. So it was a real privilege to have the fitness and, and the time. and The Beats and Fellowship gave me some uh, time to do all that tramping. It was a real privilege.
1: Mm. Yeah. And, yeah. and you talk about it as a form of respect as well, getting to know the details and the individual plants rather than just looking at the landscape for the pleasure it gave you.
2: Yeah, because it's so much, well I'd already spent years going, it's so beautiful and it's like, oh the sky and everything is for me to make me feel what a beautiful thing to look at but when you go out and pay attention to everything around you you realise that land is there for itself it's not there for us mm-hmm. so, uh, and you would experience that through your farming
3: exactly yeah Mm. Um, I mean it's uh, the way you said footprints or footsteps sometimes I feel like I'm actually walking the same soil the same land that my great great grandfather walked it's it is the exact same soil Um, there's been no more soil laid down there hasn't been time for that so I'm actually really following in his footsteps and uh, that's a big responsibility um I think there's a responsibility there, of course, to the land, to the environment, but there's also, when you're thinking about footsteps and following footsteps, there's a responsibility to the family name. And uh, there's a lot of family farms that have been sold out of the family. Um, And I always find it's, um, it's just, you don't want to be that generation that drops the ball so there's a huge, huge pressure on you to keep farming. Um, so, but footsteps can come in all sorts of different um, shapes and sizes. I was thinking the other day, um, footstep steps going back even further um, on the farm, I mean, there's big parts of my farm in the summertime, they dry out. Uh, and it's like big roadways through the farm. And there's nothing can grow there. It's just, barren, it's dry, nothing grows and those are the old sawmill tracks from when they cleared the land and what they did was they used to drag them out on uh, behind uh, draft horses and uh, they compacted that soil so much that nothing now grows so that's a huge footprint that we've left Mm. Um, and there's nothing I can do to stop that I've tried breaking the soil up but that's compacted now forever so we've really got to be quite mindful about what we do Because further down the line, we're going to still be seeing it.
1: Mm. What are your favourite times of day or year to be outside? And what does it look and feel like?
3: Mm. Well, I do all my writing in the morning. I get up really early. Um, I like to be on the computer between uh, 5 and 5.30. So that's this time of year. It's before the sun comes up. And uh, I've got, I'm lucky because the window, the sun comes in the window, so I just love sunrises. And it's also, um, this is a nice time of year because autumn is the time of swallows and hawks. Um, so I've got swallows in the pond out in the paddock there. They're always dipping down into the water, into their reflections. And I've got the hawks circling around the maize paddocks and everything like that. So it's a beautiful time of year for, for me.
2: Um, And it's also a bit of downtime as well. Um, Interestingly enough, (laughs) um, I set myself a target to um, get up and write the weather. There's something amazing about writing down the weather and and really noticing what the weather's doing. So I try to – I can't say every morning (laughs) – but um, I try to get up and go out and just sit there for maybe 10 minutes and write everything I see and hear. And because it's going over, it's gone through winter, it's gone through flood, and it's always at sunrise, Mm. Um, it's almost like a spiritual practice because Mm -hmm. um, it's so deep that every day the sun rises. Um, I don't know what it does to you, but I think it really affects you at some level of hope or... um,
3: yeah, there's something very primal about watching the sun. And if you're mm. like we are, we watch the sun on that arc across the sky. Mm. And it's, it's not always the same arc. It's always changing with the season. And um, it's, it's, it's a nice thing to, to keep us grounded, really, and, and plug us in.
1: Does it feel spiritual to you?
3: I guess you could call it that. It certainly puts you in your place, makes you feel... That, you know, you're here for, you know, a good time,
2: not a long time. Um, or you could be gone like that. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Because we watch the hawks and the
1: magpies, the magpies <laughs> fighting. yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. The land always endures. <clears throat> That's for sure. Certainly yeah. does. Yeah.
2: But you know when um, we lived on the mountain. With a toddler, can I
1: just add, there's a fantastic section in Gillian's book when she talks about carrying logs with her husband out of the bush and there's a toddler toddling along. And I'm like, "You, how did you manage to <laughs> oh, yeah. do that? that yeah. It just sounded like such a trial. Well, not a well, trial, well, but it's, there's so much more to consider when you have a small yeah. child and you're living in an extreme yeah. environment.
2: And I remember she had a little yellow nightie on and we were... Coming out of the bush, we only felled fallen timbers. And we'd taken a big mill up there. It took days with a tractor to wind up into the mountains. And then we were in the bush like we'd gone back hundreds of years and would mill it and then carry it out on our shoulders between us, the totara, the the dead totara and beach, and Evie toddling along. (laughs) Yeah. Mm Would you
3: like a... to read us? Sorry, go on. Oh, okay. Read a piece? Yes. <coughs> okay. You don't said, need glasses yet? No, me? I don't, no. <laughs> well, kind of. I just have very long arms. <laughs> was that your daughter, the, the toddler? Is she? Because is she, I met your daughter this morning.
2: I've three daughters. Okay, yeah, I met one of them daughter. this morning. Yeah, yeah, at
3: the left. Quite, oh, did you? Yeah, yeah, in the hotel. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> um, Thank you. yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. She, she's she's come here. Oh, yeah. Hannah,
3: here she is. <laughs> yeah, so sorry. I was just. <laughs> it's just been incredible coming up here because we been bumping into so many people. I met Brian Turner, who um, is your partner, mm. and Brian Turner is one of my poetry heroes. I have his selected poems beside my bed, and I've read it cover to cover so many times. And um, so meeting him has been a big thing for me. Yeah. But I was having breakfast yesterday, and uh, I, this guy was sitting next to me, and I thought, that's Bill Mannhire. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, ah, oh, here you go. Anyway, I saw him staring at me, and I thought, why is he staring at me? Anyway, he, comes, he, he came back with a glass of juice, and he said to me, I'm sorry, I've forgotten your name, but I know you off the TV.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> and
3: then, then when John Campbell yesterday when he interviewed Brian, I saw him coming out and we saw him together and he said, Oh, oh Tim Saunders, now I know you from somewhere. <laughs> and I was like, uh, you, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry Yeah.
2: But we do keep meeting people in the lift yeah.
3: Yeah. You could just go
2: Come to a festival and go all day Up and down on the lift yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've met Babe Ruth and oh. Tusiata yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Lloyd-Jones Yeah, wow. yeah. Okay <clears throat> oh, So my, I, I have a stream on my boundary too Yeah, yeah. yeah. So not quite a river But I first saw the Burn from a bridge, a coppery, shining pathway bounded by trees. There'd been nothing to tell me the swampy piece of land for sale beside the main road had anything of such beauty, only a scrawl of willows along the far boundary, the Burn. It flows down the Ida Valley and uniquely is met by a stream flowing from the opposite direction, the pool Burn. Joined, it heads through the Paul Gorge between the Raggedy Range and Blackstone Hill, where viaducts rise and rail tunnels lead cyclists into the dark of the land and out again. I'd looked for a piece of land with running water because for 17 years in Motawaka I'd lived beside the sea. The light on water and the call of seabirds had been a constant solace to me. And when your life takes a sudden turn, It's the thread of things that can lead you through, starting over. We think we did that when we first left home aged 18, with a future yet to be shaped. If we were lucky, we already had some sense of a thread, like Ariadne's string that we followed, a catch in the throat. Ah, this is where I want to be, who I am and who I love. But aged 55, deposited once again on the shores of the childless, partnerless, partnerless, soon-to-be-homeless. This time round, I was facing it all with hair-going grey, body stiffer, and a numb sense of hopelessness. Never let yourself be bitter, friend and writer Joy Cowley reminded me. I took that piece of advice as if it were timber redefining my boundaries. Loss, it comes to us in many ways, comes silently, suddenly, or sometimes as if it's the last piece of a jigsaw put into place. There, and now it's time to go. Change is something else, though it has the same outcome. One is chosen, the other not. Yet there we are, walking into the unknown, and something in us arises to face it. But why did you come here, people asked me, a young farmer at the pub. Or a farmer's wife, a farmer herself, seeing to the lambing beat and three children while her husband was overseas. Because of the hills, I'd say. When all else fails, the light on the hills is unfailing. The ridges outlined in gold at sunset, and in the morning the folds and gullies blue, almost transparent as the sun rises. Land is cheap here because. As one traveller sitting in the local cafe with a very good coffee put it, I'm in the middle of nowhere. Yet nowhere is always somewhere. To the hawks cruising the thermals above the Eiderburn. To the stolid Hereford crosses munching the ryegrass and timothy, oblivious to the rain. To the farmers bringing in an unexpected third crop of lucerne after a wet spring. And to the new people who find this valley, who find any valley in the middle of nowhere, which offers respite from a broken life, or from that dull and awkward feeling that perhaps there is more to life, and perhaps it is here, with the sparrows thriving in the willows, the blue heron and arrow gliding towards the pond, and the light changing on the rocky tours. Everywhere is a reminder that we are only a part of this world, not its dominator, and privileged to be here. Thank mm. <laughs> you. Thank you.
1: I'd like to go back to that word nowhere that you mentioned in the reading because there's uh, something that comes through in both your books is the idea that there's an unexpected beauty to be found in landscapes that people might not examine closely. And so I wonder if you could both talk a little bit about that, about looking more closely. Yeah,
3: I mean, I find beauty not just in what you see traditionally as beauty. I I think there's this hidden, all the hidden processes of water and weather that have gone into what we now know as where we are. There's... um, The soil that we have is basically just ground-up rock and um, rotten um, plant matter. It's come down from the hills. Everything used to just be barren rock. It got eroded. It came down the rivers. And that's now... That's incredible to me that there are just these processes. The, The moon we think of the moon as just being a beautiful thing in the sky, whereas that is actually controlling our tides, which control our currents, which controls our weather. Now, as a farmer, I can look at the moon and say, well, that's nice, but I also know when to plant and when to harvest. I think that's a big thing. And you <coughs> might, some people might think, yeah, well, that doesn't really work. But it does. I mean, I've seen the biggest, meanest, toughest forestry worker say to me, oh, I'm not cutting the trees today. Because it's a full moon, and the sap's rising, so processes like that, not really that we can see with the naked eye, but it's just an inherent beauty that we that we're around all the time.
1: yeah, and something you say in your book is that when you look across these vast, high mountain ranges, all this was once under the sea that's
2: right, we were uh, uh, under the sea, and um, they've found crocodiles I mean we were under the sea, and then we were a big lake, Lake Manahirakea. Um, so that's, that's that processes mm. that you talk about. But um, a, a friend of, of ours in the environmental society said that every time he goes into the wild, he always tries to find one new thing he hadn't seen before and to learn it. And so it's, it's actually a very simple thing to do. And... Um, one thing I remember from him showing me was he he bent down and picked up these threads it looked like just dusty threads and it's a very special lichen called, um, he called it a tumbleweed lichen but it's called um, a a vagrant lichen or a resurrection lichen where it's not attached to the earth and it exists for itself and it blows along the ground and when it rains it flattens itself out and it's called uh, chondropsis semiviridis, <laughs> but he, he knelt down and, and showed me, and it was just so amazing to think this there's, there's so much we know, we know nothing about that's living these lives you know that we think we're it but but you know the lichen <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it was amazing,
1: well, these things that just look like <clears throat> dust or a yeah. uh, uh, chopped off bit of grass, but it's a resurrection lichen. That's a, resurrection. a great name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that name. Yeah. 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 I'd like to talk now about being kaitiaki, because in very different ways, you two are both kaitiaki of the land that you are currently walking upon, but yet there's quite a difference as well, because you would call yourself an environmentalist, or as Brian was saying yesterday in the Honoured Writers' Session, one of the greenies, um, or a greenie
2: witch, I've been called. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'll take that. <laughs> and but you green- get
3: on well with Catherine.
2: Yeah. yeah, I so like it She's a vegetarian. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I'm a vegan. So. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> but um, environmentalists are so often in conflict of with farmers because of a perception or a lack of understanding. And certain large scale, certainly large scale industrial farming is immensely mm. damaging, but. You, when you write in your book you describe the various ways that you nurture the land and I wonder if you could both talk (coughs) about how in your own way you are kaitiaki yeah are we we are
2: I guess I do boring things like write a lot of submissions yeah Um, so in in our village of 35 there's six members of the environmental society (laughs) Of the committee, six members of the committee, wow. who I think are all here today, which is... Oh, wow. <laughs> so a quarter, a quarter of our village... Yeah, hands up, Environmental Society. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Maybe four today. I think we're like the farmer's worst nightmare to have um, environmentalists who are also writers with a voice shift into their area. <laughs> So it's been a really learning thing for us to understand where they're coming from. Like, I think succession is a huge thing. Mm. The pressure they feel to save their land for the next generation mm. is a pressure we don't... We're thinking of the land in big terms. But they're trying to keep on their land and we are trying to... Well, at the moment, in our district is the big fight is over the river um, and the river is the most overallocated river in New Zealand. So I think mostly in New Zealand, um, 25% of the rivers is taken for irrigation and 75% for the river. But because we were a gold mining river and it was given out during gold mining days as gold permits and then transferred to the land, of the river is taken with irrigation and the 1st of October 2021 they said 30 years ago that they would reset the river and try and give more water back to the river and so we are a voice for that river but for the farmers who've built their livelihoods it's a really frightening thing and so we are the face of that frightening thing Um, and so it's a really learning thing how to be a community, and try and understand each other.
1: How does that play out in the community? Quite badly sometimes. You know? <laughs>
2: um, I was doing some research for an essay, and I, uh, a, a woman farmer agreed to talk to me, and I went to she took me all around her farm, and then I said, I really want you to come to my home. And I sat at her kitchen table, and she came to mine, and I said, it's really hard to live in a place where every neighbour around you, as far as I can see, is, doesn't really, I don't know if it's not like you or is against you, um, I said, it's really hard when you love the land and then all the people that own that land don't like what you're doing. And she said, well, we feel the same. Like we." And I hadn't thought of that, that the farmers were thinking that we were sitting, that every time they saw us, that we were hating on them, and she said... We need to do this more. We just need to sit at the kitchen table. And mm. so, yeah, I'm thinking about that idea. It's of, more
3: communication. It needs to be open. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Because there's fear on both sides. Yeah. And fear makes you do things mm. and um, feel things about people. and But really, we all want the same thing in the
3: end. Yeah, and that them and us thing doesn't work.
2: No. You know,
3: this whole divide. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, as a
3: farmer, um, exactly what you just said, it's a long-term thing. Um, I want that farm to be there for the next generation, next five generations, ten generations, hundred generations. I don't want to be the last one that just ruins the whole thing and has to walk away. Um, And that's all part... I don't really think of it as being... An environmentalist I mm. think of it as just being a human because if you're thinking of the future you're thinking of your children and if you're not thinking of your children you're not human so it's yeah mm. it's basically yeah open these venues, you know communication is king yeah
2: mm. I wish you lived it out area <laughs> <laughs> I have I, I
3: mean my farm is only 280 hectares only but mm. that's actually quite a small farm mm. um, compared to the big stations down yeah, south. Yeah, because
2: so my neighbour's got 20,000. Yeah, 20, yeah exactly, yeah. and
3: um, there's a lot of issues, I think, when it comes to, say, well, why don't you plant a third of your farm in trees or something like that, which is great if you're on hill country with mm. lots of it, but if you've only got a little bit of it, Mr Bank Manager says no. And it's Mr. Bank Manager that's my boss. Mm. Unfortunately,
1: mm. not that you return his calls.
3: No. <laughs> yeah, he's um, yeah. So it's 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 a tough thing to think about. Mm.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Because for me, the river. Uh, when we go to the Environment Court, you know, we we there's days and days of irrigators and their lawyers arguing why they need to keep that water. And then it's like the, the environmentalists, this little group of us get up and try and speak for the river. Yeah, because
3: someone has to do it. Well, the river can't speak for itself unless you're present, unless you're listening, <coughs> and yeah. then you can hear it. But, um, I mean, irrigation in my area is a problem uh, that's taking groundwater Not from the river. They take Mm. groundwater. Now, I also take groundwater to just in the troughs for my stock. Now, there's so many irrigators now that every summer that groundwater is gone and it's it's stock need water. Um, And my argument has always been, well, if you want to farm, farm where you're leaving the least, you know, the smallest footprint that you can. Yeah. Don't go and put a big, Dairy farm where it's nice and dry and mm. and everything where you're going to have to put irrigation in just to you know to feed something you've got to work in with mm. the land. Mm. Yeah. But not yeah. everyone
1: does has that no. same mm. thought process that you do, and there are some farmers mm. who do yeah. still want to take more water. I know Canterbury's a big example of yeah. that, and mm. and that's a real thorny issue. It is, mm. yeah. yeah. Sometimes,
3: yeah, it's it's hard because as a farmer, I don't like really putting the rest of them in, on the spot, but yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: Mm. yeah.
2: There's a farmer in our, our district who I went to interview, Barney, <coughs> he's 73, and they farm without irrigation, mm. and have done all, the, all his life, and I, I said to him, what do you think about the environmentalists, the new people, and he said, I never think about you. <laughs> 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 because we're not a threat to him, because he's just he he grows a lot of lucerne, and he said lucerne is a dry man's irrigation. Yeah. Mm. He he lives his life with the land, dry land farming, and he doesn't need the river. And so he, mm. we're not a threat, and he doesn't have to think about us. And I'm so happy about that. <laughs> yeah. Would you like to read something now, Um
3: Yeah, I can do. Um, Find something to read in here. So this is about uh, my sense of belonging. I stood silently on the terrace in the swimming light, thought about the farm and my place in it. The woolshed defied the gale, its squat outline, just discernible in the dim light. It was a ghost in the dark night, tenacious, spectral, a memorial to those who had passed this way before and a testament to the future, a reminder that our family had farmed this piece of land for over a hundred years, and that we needed to leave it in a state suitable for those generations still to come. The Woolshed had seen all the dramas over the years, a staunch custodian that had watched all the comings and goings. It was an indifferent bystander that loomed large in the history of the farm, a monument to the people who had worked to shape the land and provide food for the masses that belonged here. There aren't many people in the world who can actually say they belong somewhere. I am only here in this place at this particular moment because of an extraordinary set of circumstances that led my forebears here. I'm not sure that constitutes an indefinite claim on the land I don't think anyone anywhere can definitively say that they are entitled to a particular piece of earth. Take the people away and the land will still be here doing what it has done forever. People can be born into farming. Some choose to become farmers, others farm because that is what their family has always done and their responsibility is to keep it going. Maybe you've never known anything else. Maybe it is in your blood. Maybe you have never wanted to move. I have friends who felt obliged to keep their family farms going, and I watched as the harsh reality of failure sunk in, sucking their livelihoods and their own families down into the quagmire of a muddy drain. Failure is hard for the family farmer, You're not just letting yourself down, you feel the weight of history around your neck. Sometimes I'm not sure exactly why I am here at this exact moment. Maybe for all of the reasons above, my mind changes as much as the weather. But I have learned that until you accept what you have for what it is, you will never experience that sense of belonging. You can see hills from wherever you farm in this country, Undulating ranges in the distance, rolling green pastures, weather-beaten and eroded rocky outcrops, this farming life is full of peaks and valleys. I live on the fish Maui pulled heaving from the bottom of a nebulous sea, a spine of mountain ranges runs down the centre, a knuckled sun rises over the tops every morning and spills across our river-flat paddocks. Black clouds sometimes bruise the hills, obscure them from view, but they are always there, right where they belong. A long line links the past to where I am right now. I belong here because it is home.
1: You talked about the weight of history around your neck, and I can totally understand that. But one thing that living as close to the land as you two do must surely give you is a beautiful sense of moving around the place that will last far longer than you, as you talk about. So does this, this longer time scale that you both experience give you, <clears throat> give you comfort, give you wonder? What does it, what does it give you?
3: Oof. I think it uh, it is a responsibility, and uh, it's something we have to live up to. Really, all of us.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um the wonder, well, the wonder feeds us. Mm. Um, and I like what Iris Murdoch said. She said, "To pay attention is a moral act," and I th- I think it is a I think it is a moral thing to do to pay attention and, um, and not only like where you live but also, you know, choices you make about what clothes you buy or what food you buy or, um, yeah, we we can all have that sense of wonder and that sense of choice. Um, yeah, but sometimes then you have to stand up and do something and like, just maybe write that submission <laughs> mm. bit like be reading in the paper of what's happening and when they're saying we want your opinion just to do that mahi sometimes mm. yeah mm.
3: yeah it's a wonder that i can get up in the morning um yeah. <laughs> yeah it's um no it's it's all about being there for the long haul and i think that's important
1: yeah, yeah. we now have Ten minutes left, so it is time for questions. There are a few microphones in the aisle, so if you have anything you'd like to ask Gillian or Tim, please make your way to the microphone. Or just yell at us. (laughs) No, no, no. I'm I'm used to being yelled at. (laughs) It's all recorded. It's all recorded, so you actually do need to stand at the microphones. But what I would say, as every chair through time immemorial has said, is that please make it a question, not a um, long-winded statement, because I will try and overcome a lifetime's worth of conditioning and, from my polite parents and interrupt you. <laughs> Ma'am, you first.
2: Thank you both. Um, Tim, um, hypothetically, what would happen if none of your offspring or your,
3: brother, or your sibling's offspring wanted to be on the farm? Yeah, we're going through the whole succession thing at the moment. And um, I actually don't have any children, and uh, neither does my brother. So we are going to continue farming as long as we can. But my nephew, my sister's boy, uh, he was a chef, trained chef, and he didn't like being a chef anymore, so he's come onto the farm with us. And he's doing quite well. And um, I think he is going to be the next generation to keep it going. Um, at least that's what we're training him up for anyway. So, um, so it's, yeah, it's just a case of um, having the opportunity, leaving it there for somebody to keep it rolling.
2: Could it be any... I mean, if you didn't have any re- blood relative, you would feel... Yeah. able to hand it on to someone else and would it always be as a farm?
3: Yeah, that's, that's a big question um, in itself. Um, I, I don't even know what Dad thinks about that. Um, but uh, certainly I don't want it to see, see it go into pine trees. <laughs> um, gee, that would be a complete disaster uh, from where I am at the moment. Um, that uh, out towards the east coast everything is covered in pine trees and I'm saying everything of the rolling hills the 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 nice land and that's at the expense of not just our farmland but our land itself um, we talked about Fenoa and what the land means to us those pine trees are now Owned by overseas countries. Uh, that's not New Zealand anymore. That's, and that's a real tragedy for this country, I think. So, certainly don't want to see that happen.
1: Question over here. My, I,
3: my, my question is actually related to that, but it's to Gillian. Um, middle of nowhere. And there is that notion that um, there's a certain point where you can't... You know, everyone I know sort of gets to a certain age and wants to move to Wanaka. (laughs) Um, So having a deep connection to the land, how do you... What's your philosophy and your approach towards this notion that you may not be able to stay there because there are no facilities, there's no hospital, there's no...
2: Um, Yeah, I I came confronted with that when um, I fell through the roof... (laughs) <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and you know I broke bones and things and I couldn't um, walk or leave the house I was t- I, I suddenly you realise one day you might be, you can't live here anymore and you have to give up my straw house. hat but I think life is about loss anyway I, I just have to park that idea that one day I might have to go and live with Hannah. <laughs> um, she didn't look very happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, she would love it. <laughs> um, I lived with Hannah and Sam when, for eleven months before I built the house, and she had a bed with my granddaughter. Um, and it was the most beautiful thing when you realise what it's like to live multi-generationally, and we we're in a, a little house. And we all just operated around each other, and Hannah and I and Sam studied at night, and we looked after the babies. It was so I and I'd had to go from my own home to that. and I think we adapt, I think we adapt. Kyle. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's whatever we have to give up, there will be something of value, and I just have to trust that. I mean, I would like to stay at my place till you always think to the end, but we you, you don't know what's going to happen, and you have to accept that,
1: I think. Mm. It's like living on the land. You have no control over what is happening. Mm. Yeah. 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 We Thank have a you,
2: question pa. over here. Hi, Gillian. I was wondering if you could please share a little bit about your journey in building your straw bale house.
1: Oh, okay. Thank you.
2: Um, of course, I grew up reading the whole earth catalog <laughs> it, where I got this idea that you could build your own house. And so I always um, believed that we could. And I have tried writing to the government successive times that it would be really good for unemployed people to work on schemes where you build natural houses to help people home, to have homes. And they're doing it in America now on the Hopi Reservation. It would be a really good thing because um, you only need one person who's a builder and the rest... There were seven grandmothers on the house um, and Hannah was pregnant. I had the little grandchildren no one had, we none of us knew anything but it's, because it's natural it's so forgiving and that's why it could be the answer to everything mm. <laughs> that we could build forgiving houses with our own hands out of sustainable materials would be a beautiful thing and it, it was the, one of the greatest joys i had was the act of building
3: and it gives a connection to the earth too because i think yeah. we're disconnected from the earth even through our houses Yes, um, because yeah, you, you you've got that connection. I think yeah. that's a big thing. Is we've we've become
2: disconnected with the yeah. earth, and also the idea where, when we live where we live in Central Otago, there's a lot of people with um, there's the old houses that they all built themselves. So we're reminded of it all the time. Mm. But then maybe in Auckland, you think you can only have a house because all these specialists will do their job, mm. and you lose the idea that no, we used to build our own shelter. Mm. Yeah, but how you do that high-rise, I'm not sure. But but there has to be an answer for it somehow. Mm.
1: And we have time for one more question over here, please.
2: Yeah, um, I've got a
3: question for Gillian. I live up north of Auckland a little, but I love going down to the Mania Basin, which is obviously your area,
2: and, and I can recall being very devastated when I went
3: down last time and saw a farm, uh, irrigated farm, no doubt, just out of Ranfurley. And I'm thinking, who the hell let those people put their farm there? Was that a weakness of the local area, the administration that allowed that to happen? Because it seemed to go against all the original way of tussock land mm. in that basin. Can you help me out here?
2: Um, Yeah, the loss of the tussock lands is is a great loss because people don't want to go to central Otago and think they're in the Waikato, Mm. you know. Um, Yes, there's a failure where the the long-term plan for the district council doesn't cover anything to do with land use. As of right, landowners can burn 10 hectares of tussock a year. Um, And the OIC has had the foot off the pedal. And they... I guess we are responsible in a way too that we all have to try and keep on top of the council, but they haven't, for my mind, they haven't done their job and looked after the, pre- the precious treasure that the tussock lands are. Mm. Yeah, mm.
3: Yeah, I think also, because there's a travesty, it's terrible. There <coughs> should not be farms going in down there, and I think we have to think as well of how we live our lives uh, we 've got a lot of these big dairy farms going in, and we are very bad at wasting food wasting milk. How, you know you go to the fridge, the milk 's two days over, it 's used by date. You think it 's only milk, I get rid of it, and that 's what 's feeding the industry because there 's a demand for more and more milk. So I think if we all try and just think about food wastage and, and not using as much then there won't be that demand there. And, uh, yeah, so I think we've really got to all be in this together. Mm. Mm. Yeah. My parents are the worst at it.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh, there's stuff in their fridge that's been there since 1970s. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually know of one block of cheese that had <laughs> kids, and one of them moved to Wellington, and it's now a beehive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: So there we go, something we can all do to love our land. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for this morning. Uh, Thank you very much to you all for coming. You can talk to Tim and Gillian at the author signing table in the foyer up the small flight of stairs directly ahead of the exit. Their fine books, which I recommend very much, are for sale up there too, and they'll be signing books immediately after the session. Thank you again, all, for coming this morning. There are many excellent sessions at the festival this weekend, so please do stick around and check them out. And finally, thank you to Gillian and Tim for sharing your worlds with us so beautifully today. <laughs> thank koso, you very
0: much. Tanakoe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2021 Auckland Writers Festival, Waituhi or Tamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.